0: Have you ever been in a situation where you were looking for the Lord's wisdom, his presence, his closeness, his insight, and he just seemed to be absent? Nowhere to be found. Let me see if you've been there. Oh, most of you. That's good. That's good. When my uh, children, uh, they're all grown now, but as I left home... One of the things I, you know, it's always important to give fatherly wisdom, not that they ever listen, but it's still important, right? <laughs> so one of the things I told them was, up until now, uh, you've kind of been under my protection, Nancy and mine as parents, and now you're moving out and you're about, what it, you're learned, you're about to learn what it means to serve the Lord directly, and you're going to have to learn how to relate to him. And uh, I use the metaphor of a dance floor. I use a couple different metaphors. Sometimes you get out on the dance floor, and you're dancing with the Lord, and everything is just perfect. The rhythm, you're together. You just move real naturally. And you think, how could I ever doubt? And then sometimes you get out on the dance floor, and, and it's like he's playing, he's dancing to a different tune. You're stepping on each other's toes. You're banging your knees. You can't get on the same page. That's when the Lord's trying to get in your face a little bit and say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's don't keep going down this direction." And sometimes you get on the dance floor and you walk out there and there's nobody there. It's just you. The Lord doesn't show up. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're not alone. You see, it's in those times when God is actually present, but he's often standing back in the shadows. That's when your faith gets tested. That's when you get a chance. That's when you have a chance to, he has a chance to enjoy you and watch you, and you have a chance to learn how real is your faith. Another metaphor I've used is, is I picture you've got a two-year-old child, and uh, you, there's a corner in your house, and as a parent, you're... You're standing there looking around the corner and the two-year-old's doing their thing, toddling, trying to stand up, falling down, trying to stand up, doing things. And they're not aware that you're there, but you're there. And you can see everything that's going on. They're protected. They're under your will. They're under your guidance. And you're just letting them do their thing. That's another way of looking at it. When the Lord doesn't show up, the Lord is actually very, very present. He's just quiet. And he's quiet for a reason. We're going to jump into Esther. Esther is unique in this regard. God is never mentioned in the book. Not once. Not once. And yet he's very present. And so just that alone connects that story with us. Because that describes us many times throughout life. We're in a series called On the Edge. And yes, I'm standing on the edge on purpose. Don't get nervous. The word is said happens as I fall, but it's only a foot and a half. Okay, standing on the edge and we're looking at those stories which are so familiar to us but we haven't always thought about why. Why? Those stories where where redemptive history comes right up along the edge of the cliff and if God doesn't intervene then Jesus is never born. Redemptive history falls off the cliff. So we looked at Judah and Tamar the first Sunday. Um, Talked about how Amazing that was, that she intervened and stepped in in that story. And every every story that we're going through has these characteristics. God is right on the edge. Now, Esther uh, may be the very last book historically in the Old Testament, uh, written in the 5th century under King uh, Xerxes, Persian government. Um, And just to give you the history, because this relates to us as well, the, southern, the northern kingdom is long gone. Israel divided their rebellion into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom has disappeared a long time ago. The southern kingdom, uh, those, the people, the two tribes in the southern kingdom got sent into exile by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were eventually taken over by the Persians. And so the Persians are now in control. After about 50 years, they get to come back. When the Persians took over, they had a different foreign policy than the um, Babylonians. And so they allowed them to come back. Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books capture the story of them coming back, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, because the king of Persia uh, allowed them, Cyrus allowed them to come back. So now we're after that. Now we're at the very end of, of Old Testament history, and we've got another 450 years before Christ comes, and this is historically the last book, and it's the story of Queen Esther. Now Esther is in Susa, in the capital of the Persian Empire, which is very far away from where Jerusalem is, where they've rebuilt the wall, and they've put the temple and the temple practices back in place. So if you're reading, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you're over on this part of the empire. Uh, it, is, it precedes Esther, but you get a sense of how important the temple is in Jewish theology. They need the temple. Deuteronomy 12, they couldn't worship anywhere else except the temple. And so the temple was critical. So in their own little orbit, right here is the temple and the the readings of the Old Testament and, and life is beginning to resume. They did not realize that in another entire place of the empire, something was happening that would cost them their lives as we know they never got that message what happened over here in susa with esther impacted what happened over here and these people didn't even know it now that is very much our life you have no idea what god is doing in parts of your life that you're not even aware Job never knew that it was satan when Job went to God, he stood before God. He could have said, what do you do that? And God could have said, that was Satan. That wasn't me. But he didn't. He takes full responsibility. Job never knew what happened behind the veil, so to speak. That is a part of the life serving this one true living God is that you have no idea what's happening around you where God is orchestrating events. So you know what? When I get stuck in a traffic jam heading down to Denver, do I worry? No? because maybe God just protected me from something big. I don't know. And so the people in Jerusalem had no idea that their very existence has been threatened by what happens over here in Susa. So let me tell you the story. I'm not going to read the whole book. It's too many chapters. But we are going to skip through so you get the basic storyline. I'm in Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over the 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush, that by the way was 538 to 3, uh, I'm sorry, 486 to 465 BC, fifth century BC. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. Verse four: For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who lived in Susa. So after partying for a while, you know what happens at parties. Don't have to tell you that. People get a little crazy, drink a little too much, do things that maybe they regret later. He orders Queen Vashti to come out and wear her royal crown, verse 11, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. She's property. Going to show off my gold. Going to show off my power. Going to show off my women. And so he orders for her to be brought. He wants to display how beautiful his queen is, and she refuses. So now we learn something about culture, and how men think about in this time of the world and sometimes today. In verse 17, well, verse 16, um, well, verse 15, the king asks, according to the law, what, what do we have to do about Queen Vashti? She refused to come out. Verse 17, the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. In the next Synods. the women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way there will be no end of disrespect and discord we got a problem we can't let the women do this that's what he's saying so at the advice of his wise leaders he issues an edict and you see in the mede persian empire when a king issues an edict it's eternal it's permanent you can never undo it which is part of the story in just a moment can never undo it. The edict is Queen Vashti will never see the king again, ever. You're done. Okay? So that's a statement to all the women. Women, pay attention. Okay? Don't displease your husbands. They may send you away, and you'll never see them again. Now, I recognize some of you will say, "Woohoo!" <laughs> and the men would starve. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where does that clean lobby come from? <laughs> it's a miracle. It's a miracle. <laughs> this gives us a glimpse into the, an ancient culture and how they fought. Chapter 2 is the whole story of Esther becoming queen. Uh, they put her through a whole year's process where she gets beautified and all that kind of stuff. And at the end of the chapter, verse 17, the king was attracted to Esther more than any other woman. She won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She's now the queen. She is a Jew. She's Jewish. All of a sudden, verse 19. We just did a series in the building, Trouble Brewing. We looked at the meanwhile passages. Here's a story moving along. Meanwhile, something else surfaces. Meanwhile... Verse 19, the virgins were assembled a second time. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai, that's her uncle, by the way, had told her to do that. So Mordecai's sitting at the gate, and he discovers a plot to kill, to assassinate the king, Xerxes. So he makes it known to the royal court. They capture the two guys. They execute him. Life goes on. Chapter 3. Meanwhile, another twist in the plot. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadathah. Had to look at that one. The Agatite. Okay, stop. little tiny detail, Agatite. In 1 Samuel 15, King Agat is in charge of the Amalekites. The Amalekites in Exodus 17 were the very first nation to attack Israel When they left Egypt, we have long memories. Long memories. This Amalekite goes back a long, long ways, this struggle between these two nations. So King Xerxes elevates him and gives him a seat of honor. Uh, Everybody had to kneel down and pay him honor. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So they told Haman about it I'm in chapter three uh, to see what he would do, because Mordecai had told him that he was a Jew. Ah, ha ha! The plot thickens. We hate Jews. us Amalekites, we hate Jews. And he, Mordecai refuses to pay him honor. So verse five, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. He's very angry. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Okay, now this is happening in Susa and way over in Jerusalem where they have a temple and they have restored their worship practices. They have no idea they're about to be handed a death sentence. You don't know what goes on around you remember that. So he looks for a way to destroy it. So he goes, verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. That's about 375 tons of silver. You want to get to the president? Offer him money. Doesn't matter which party it is. You want to get to the king? Bribe him. So the king said, go ahead. Do what you want. I don't care. Okay, so now you see the dilemma. He just issued a royal edict, which cannot be overturned, that says, kill all the Jews. Genocide. His wife is a Jew, and he doesn't know it. Wow. <laughs> I love how God twists and turns stories. So, when verse chapter 4, when Mordecai learned of all that had had to happen, he tore his clothes, put on a sackcloth and ashes, went out in the city wailing loudly and bitterly. I bet he did. So, Queen Esther sends a word to him and says, what's going on? And he said, did you not hear the news? The king just signed a royal edict that we're all going to be slaughtered. You need to do something about it. And she says, well, wait a minute. I can't just walk into the king's presence. I have to be summoned. I have to be invited. I may be his wife, but that doesn't mean anything. Because if I walk into his king's presence and he does not extend to me the gold scepter, death is the next thing. So here's what Mordecai's answer is. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So Esther walks into the royal palace and risks her life. The king looks over and likes her and extends the royal scepter, the gold scepter. Come on in, queen. What is it you want? I'd like to have a banquet, she says, for you and Haman. And he says, perfect. When? How about tomorrow? She says, perfect. Go get Haman and tell Haman that we're going to a banquet. So Haman's pretty excited because he's pretty high up, and the queen requests him to come with the king for a banquet. And then after that, he says he's still concerned about Mordecai. He can't get over his rage. He's not connected the dots that the queen is Jewish and Mordecai, uh, and he doesn't know that, and Mordecai is. He hasn't figured that out yet. So he's telling his wife at the end of chapter 5, he's still angry about Mordecai. He won't bow down and give me honor. So his wife says, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits, asked the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. He says, okay. He wakes up the next morning and walks into the king's palace, chapter six. Meanwhile, another twist and turn. During the night, the king couldn't sleep. So like all good kings, he can't sleep. And he says, bring in the annals of my greatness. I want to read them. I want to review what I've done how much the gods have blessed me and he's reading in there and he reads the story of earlier when this Mordecai had surfaced the plot of these two men they were going to execute him just about the time he reads that somebody says "Uh, you have a visitor in the outer court who is it it's a Haman oh perfect the second guy in the kingdom extends him the gold sucker come on in Haman Haman I have a question for you what do you do for somebody that you haven't honored because you forgot and you need to do it what's more what's Haman thinking All about me. And he says, Well, put him on your best animal, parade him around town, put your royal robe on him, give him your signet ring. Make sure everybody knows how wonderful this man is. And he said, Perfect, do that to Mordecai. (laughs) What? Do it to Mordecai. Because I was just reading in in the, the annals of my own greatness how we never honored this guy and he kept my life alive. Ah. He sees the world crashing around his shoulders, coming down. So he does that. He has him brought around. Now he's beside himself, and he's trying to figure out what to do. Now remember, he just built this real tall scaffold to hang Haman on, and he had gone into the king's presence to ask permission to hang Mordecai. And that's when he discovered he has to honor him. So at the first banquet, Esther said, uh, The king says, What can I do for you, my dear? And she says, I would like another banquet tomorrow night. So, same three get together. And while they're together, they're all at Queen Esther's banquet. The king asked her, What can I do for you? And she said, You could rescue my people. He said, What do you mean? And she said, I'm a Jew. And you signed an edict that all of us would be exterminated. And he said, I did? Who on earth wrote this edict? And Haman's sitting right there. And she said, he did. He did. See the trap? The people over here in Jerusalem had no idea this drama was unfolding. And their very lives are now at risk. So the king's kind of got a dilemma. He can't say, oops, I made a mistake. Can't rescind that one. So he just, he had signed an edict saying, genocide, kill them all. Obviously, he wasn't paying attention. This guy said it. What are we going to do? And they said, well, there's a gallows out there that uh, they're going to hang him and impale him on it. He said, hang him on it. So they drug him out and hang. It's a reversal of fortune. The classic reversal of fortune. God is nowhere mentioned in this story. Is God present? What do you think? Yes. He's present all the way through. All the way through the story, and his name is never mentioned. It's a picture of what, how we have to live life. It reminds us that God is sovereign even when we aren't aware of his presence. He is still powerfully at work. And it's also a reminder that when something is happening, that often things happen outside of our purview that we know nothing about. This God that we serve is always, always, always working on behalf of his people. Romans eight twenty eight. Anybody know that verse? What's that? We know that all things work together for the good to those who are called. That's us. All things. You have so much going on around you that you don't even know about. That God is at stake, working. Okay. This teaches us. This story teaches us so many things. One of the things that surfaces, I want to specifically mention. I've been talking about God the whole time, but it talks about what happens when you have a conflict in a worldview and theology. I mean, you have you have. The King Xerxes, you have Haman, you have Mordecai and Esther, and they have conflicting values, don't they? And last week, the reason why I'm bringing it up, last week the elders made an announcement that they have passed a formal motion to present four people as elders, two of which are women. For those of you that are visitors, our church has kind of been in this discussion for two years. After the service, two things happened. Two different groups of people came up to talk to me. Two people came up, they didn't even know each other, and they said, we, we didn't realize that there were churches that didn't allow women. How could that be? Right after that, another person came up, a third person, and said, what made you decide, now listen to these words, to move in a theologically liberal position? by appointing women. Two very different opposing views. You know, one of the greatest things about our church, one of the most beautiful things, things that I treasure, I had no idea how much I would treasure this, is that we are a community church. Mark has said many times to me, and I love it, when we do communion, if we could peel back all of your skulls and look in your brain we would see a variety of ideas of what's actually happening down here. Those of you that are Catholic have come from a position of transubstantiation. Those of you that are Lutheran come from a position of consubstantiation. Those of you that are Pentecostal have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> Not a criticism, just that you never talked about it, right? Every one of you has a different perspective. And one of the challenges the elders had was how do we maintain unity? How do we do that in these important decisions? Here's my definition of what a theologically conservative church is. And yes, I am a conservative theologian and I know some of you are wondering about that. It's real simple. I hold to the foundations of Orthodox Christianity. I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the inspiration of scripture. I believe in the sacrifice on the cross. I believe in atonement. I believe in the existence of the church, and it's the bride of Christ, and everyone who believes in Christ is part of it. I believe in the personal return of Jesus. At no point in church history was a discussion of women ever presented in a church council that I know of or talked about. It was never raised to that level. So our elders were asked, they were wrestling with the question, how do we preserve one of the greatest gifts we have ever been, we've ever been given and developed, and that is we're a community church. And the answer was, we're not going to raise this to the level of theological dogma. It's not going to be put in our doctrinal statement. We're going to let you decide. Now, last week was the perfect example of what it means when we have a different worldview. Two people come to me and said, I had no idea that there were any churches that didn't allow women to be elders. And somebody came to me and says, isn't that a movement towards liberalism? No, it's not. Because we hold to the orthodox foundational statements that the church developed by the church fathers and the apologists of the first and second centuries. We believe in the Trinity. Don't we? We believe in the present work of the Holy Spirit, don't we? Powerful. We believe in the sacrifice on the cross and atoning work that brings forgiveness, don't we? We believe in the church, the bride of Christ, and every one of you that believes in Jesus has become part of it, don't we? We believe in the personal return of Jesus, don't we? We believe in this one true God. I wanted to bring it up because Esther is an example, a classic historical example of what happens when you have competing ideas. So my suggestion, my plea, my prayer for us is let's continue to focus on staying unified as a church because the bigger threat is Frisco. (laughs) The bigger threat are those who don't know Christ. And I don't mean it as a threat to scare you, but they are they're the ones who don't even grasp what we're talking about. And they're the ones that need Jesus, quite honestly. And you guys know that we are in a time where, where uh, Esther is, is all about in living in exile. We are in a time as a church where, where we are moving further and further into exile, aren't we, as Christians? This culture is steadily becoming anti-Christian. You know that. And so the worst thing we could do is hurt ourselves. So my plea is, ask the questions, continue the discussions. The elders have made themselves available. The staff have made themselves available. But let's guard that precious gift that we have as a community church where we can have a difference of perspective and still serve the risen Lord Jesus. That's what communion is all about. Father, thank you for this incredible story of Esther. Thank you, Lord, the things we learn. Number one is when you're silent, that doesn't mean you're not present. When you're silent, it doesn't mean you're not active. Thank you that you are always at work, always for our good. Thank you, Father, that we get a clear picture of things that are occurring around us that we know nothing about, but yet we can have confidence that you're working for our good. And thank you, Father, for a clear picture of what do you do And you do have conflicting worldviews. Lord, thank you for the gift you've given this church for 105 years. A gift. A gift where we can be different and yet celebrate together your goodness. Your son Jesus. His death on the cross. Thank you for that. Father, help us to continue to protect and preserve, cultivate that gift. And to love you well. And then, Father based on that unity, help us to move out into the world around us with people that don't like Christianity and share your incredible grace and love with them. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.